This is a, a special day for Radio Days here at the Museum of Television and Radio. First, it's a great pleasure for World Space Satellite Radio to be here. It's uh, Ted Kelly from World Space Satellite Radio across this globe and XM Satellite Radio in America. I have the great pleasure of uh, having a dear friend and uh, a legendary broadcaster, Hi Brown, Hyman Brown. It's a pleasure to be here, Ted. You're more than just a friend. You're family to me. I appreciate that. Well, it's true, because all the years you were at CBS, I was a fixture, and you were truly like a brother to me, opening doors and making things possible that I couldn't myself do because I was never on staff or I never had the access to the wealth of CBS in the same sense that you had. Our introduction to each other came from uh, when I was at CBS Radio Networks and uh, heading up their marketing for the CBS Radio Network group. Emails and emails and emails are coming into us saying, where can we find Mystery Theater? Because you had gone off the air back in what year? Mid-80s? Nine, well, we went off the air in 83. In 83, and right. the email is still coming oh, in. Oh, absolutely. So, and I'm, I, I have a place on the email a lo- uh, on the cbs.com, right. uh, and uh, it's overwhelming, the response. It is so emotional. It, it doesn't necessarily relate to the story content. It relates to the whole concept of listening, and it's just transformed my whole life, Ted. Uh, today, I am wealthy enough to have a foundation called the Radio Drama Network, And forgive me, the Radio Drama Network should be the Audio Drama Network. There is (laughs) Now, why audio? There is no more radio. Radio has become 24 one-minute commercials an hour. You get a minute of news, and then you get a commercial. You get a minute of weather, you get a commercial. You get a minute of traffic, you get a commercial. You get another minute of news. God save you if the minute is a minute and a half. So now flashing back, though, to 1929, getting commercials... Was a little more difficult, wasn't it? Well, in 1929, you were lucky to get anybody who would even think of something called radio, that we could go into a home and tell you a story, not show you a story. Ted, there's such a difference between showing you a story called ER or telling you the story of Hilda Hope, MD, or Joyce Jordan, comma, girl intern, and then Joyce Jordan, girl intern, after five years became Joyce Jordan, MD. The sponsor said it's about time she became a doctor. That's very funny. You know, the uh, interesting thing from uh, the email standpoint, what we were receiving in the mid-90s at CBS were emails of people who grew up listening to Mystery Theater uh, from the late 50s through the mid-80s, right? Yeah. And the emails were, we we love Mystery Theater. How come it's not on the radio? Where can we find it? And we launched Mystery Theater on the Internet with you. And that's how I found you. That's right. I have content, Ted, that is golden. Absolutely. So the programming that we put on the Internet, the response that we received were fathers sitting there with their children, listening to, uh, it was real audio 1.0, because we're looking at 1996, 97. And uh, it was fathers listening with their children like they used to listen to mystery theater and adventure theater back in the 
70s, the 60s, the 50s, when they were growing up with you as well. This has gone on throughout your entire life, right? Well, it's happening right now in my own life. My grandson, only a week ago, whatever our date is, uh, was playing a one-hour biography I dramatized about the life of Marconi because it's 100 years right now since Marconi created the invention of wireless and it was being celebrated at a big dinner and I wrote, made a CD drama using the best actors, the best people and a wonderful script and I gave a CD of what I had done to my grandson right. and he played it in the car because they live in Westport and they were coming back from another place in Fairfield. And my great-grandson, who is nine and a half years old, was listening with Doug, my grandson. And when they got to the house, the show hadn't finished. It had another 25 minutes to go, and he wouldn't move. Until he heard the show finish. He wanted to hear the whole story. That's right. And that's Great. not happened once. It's happened many times Absolutely. with 9, 10, 11-year-olds. And it's shocking to me that the powers that be, with all the money that they're making, with all their influence in Washington, don't realize that listening is more important than almost any other, well, it can't be the most important emotional quantity in our lives, but listening, I'm touching you, Ted, right. sitting here because you're listening to me. You talk about listening, you talk about imagination, you talk of theater, of the mind. How would you describe High Brown? Well, I in would three say, words. I would, three words? Yeah. Well, the three words are joy of listening. And that's what you've created throughout your entire career. That's right. That's great. It's joyful. Thank you for discovering the joy of listening. The mind is more powerful than any pictures television can give you. The most vivid colors can't be seen on television. They're on the radio. Exactly. But there is no radio, Ted. (laughs) Please forgive me. I keep coming back to that leitmotif, radio. What is radio today? Uh, it's changed quite a bit. Do you know radio came when we were in the Depression? Right. The the greatest oh, earth-shaking uh, emotional time in our history. The, the Depression days, I, I, I stammer when I think of them because I was, I was a very, very young person when they came. And when radio came, people couldn't afford five cents to go to the movies. The subway was a nickel. The New York Times was three cents. And the only theater, the only drama they were able to get was on the radio. And we've forgotten that. What sparked your imagination? Tell me about how you grew up and where this imagination and this creativity came from. You have to believe with me that there is some God-given, divine, somebody's running the whole scheme of things. Right. And somebody up there is pulling the right strings. I can't put my finger on and say, I woke up in the morning and I had a dream or somebody said this to me. It was just an overwhelming desire to reach out to people. When I was seven years old and I was a PS-167 in Brooklyn, uh, when it was Arbor Day, they picked a kid 
to recite a poem to show parents. How, and uh, who and was that kid? That kid was Hyman Brown, spelled with a Y. Then I spelled it with an I. And only God can make a tree. Uh, when it was Armistice Day right. in Flanders Field where poppies grow, row on row. I mean, it's still vivid. Now, Somebody introduced me to the idea that I could stand on a stage in front of a couple of hundred kids who were my classmates and make them pay attention and then applaud. Wow. When that applause gets into your system, it's... Um, it's, it's, it's the bug, right? Well, somebody's patting you on the head right. a thousand times. Right, right, right. They're saying, we love you, and there are no greater words than, we love you. So radio came into being, and how did High Brown end up on the radio? Well, it ended out because I was going to do Flanders Field and, and Armistice Day and all of that. And from high school, I would go, I decided the shop teacher in high school in 1926 had us bring in Quaker Oath boxes, you know, they're round boxes. Right. And we went out and bought five cents worth of copper wire, and you wrapped a copper wire around, and now you had a condenser, and then for another 20 cents or 50, he managed to wangle some kind of a, of a a tuning instrument, you put earphones on, and suddenly you heard Cincinnati, W. Wow! Now I'm not only talking to a couple of hundred kids about Flanders. I said, this this might be a very interesting way to, to become an actor or become... I, I don't know where it came. Again, I have to... I don't know what motivated it, except to reach out and be with people. Uh, you know, the ego problem. The, you live in a home where, well... To the day my mother died and the day my father died. Mother was 98. My father was 92. I never spoke a word of English to them, Ted. Really? I, I was born in Brooklyn. Right. And I spoke Yiddish to the last words to my mother. Not that they didn't speak English, but I felt alien that I couldn't speak to them in what we call mama Lushen, mother tongue. Really? She was my mother. This was her world and her life, and I reached to her by using language, let's say, but her language rather than mine. Radio became another way of reaching out and talking a language. Your second language. Well, it's been my first language now that I know the power of the spoken. People today, the mail that I get and the uh, relationship I have with a man like yourself, the spoken word is the most powerful tool we have emotionally for reaching out. You don't need guns and nuclear bombs if we can only talk to each other. Where did your uh, parents come from? Odessa, okay. the Ukraine. So they come to America, and their son, High. Well, that their son, Hyman, come. is on the radio. Yeah, well, let me tell you something. And this is incredible because I've used it, and it's created... In, I, I can't even talk about it. Uh, uh, every time I got an award or something right. like that, I would wind up and say, you know, uh, my mother was my best listener. She would listen to the show, even if she didn't understand the English. But when I came home and she'd say, you know, hi, mother, they say your name. I said, yeah, yeah, Mama, you can understand, produced and directed. But it's in the script produced and directed by Iman Brown. And she'd say... No, Heimler. No. They say your name. And let me tell you, they have been my life. 
until this very moment because you're part of the uh, And the world continues to say your name, High Brown. Let's go forward. So you're in high school or college at Brooklyn College? When I'm, you, in, I'm in high school. You're in high school and you approach what radio station? Well, in order to get on the air in 27, 20, remember CBS didn't exist until right. 29. NBC was nebulous down at 150 Broadway. In order to, to, to get on the air, uh, I concocted a big fraud. I <laughs> went to... Every every hotel had a radio station. Okay. For twenty five dollars, you got yourself a license, and you took one of the bedrooms that became the studio, and the bathroom they broke the wall, put in a piece of glass, and the bathroom became the control room. And where did they broadcast to? Well, we read poetry. There was the Hammond okay. organ, and people like David Ross, right. you know, poets gold. Right. So I said I came in and I had to hide my books because i put on longies that morning because you'd wear and, short pants to school oh, you, you wear sure you wore <laughs> knickers with right. black stockings okay so i put on longies my mother didn't know what i was doing uh, with clothing anyway and uh, i hid my books in the men's room and walked in and said i'm a new young actor and i'm here uh in new york waiting for a rehearsal to start on a play i'm going to be doing and i could use a little publicity so would you let me go on the air for free i want to want you you don't have to pay me. Uh, I'll read poetry. And they said, well, they got plenty of time. 15 minutes at 2 o'clock meant very little to them. <laughs> so here I go on the air with, forgive me, my name is Hyman Brown. So I took the N off and I made it high right. brow, B-R-O-W. So I went on the air with high brow readings. Hot dog. I was really creating a new program. Highbrow readings. My first program. And I went on and played for 15 minutes. I came home. My, the kids at school, I never told. But my mother said, well, you know, uh, that's where it all began. They say your name. Now, after one or two of those on right. WRNY, that's the Roosevelt Hotel, I found out that there was a WPCH. Which was? That was a post Park Central Hotel. Okay. But there was a bigger one called the MCA. That was the McAlpin Hotel. And then there was GBS. That was Gimbel Brothers. So I said, well, if I'm good enough for RNY, which is on Madison Avenue, I'll be pretty good with maybe a bigger station. So the next thing you know is I'm knocking at the door of, of MCA. Right. I've got experience, say I. I was on the Royal Hotel, the Park Hotel, right? Yeah. Well, they didn't really care because they needed to fill in all this time anyway. Now at MCA, there were one or two actors hanging around. They were looking for work. There was nothing. They wanted to read poetry with the organ behind them. Right. And I heard them talking and they talked to me, I mean, I joined in, uh, about a place called NB National Broadcasting Company, which the 18, the telephone company, had down on Broadway at 150 Broadway, and that they were talking about dramatizing things and giving auditions to actors. Okay. Well, there were tryouts for plays. I didn't know any of this. I just picked it up. So I said, well, I'm going to try for an audition. <laughs> Wonderful. So I ride in, and sure enough, you can come in on a, a whatever the time was, 3 o'clock, and they gave you three minutes. Okay. In three minutes, you came up and you read something. What did you an read? Italian accent. You read something as an old man, as a young man. You, you had to go through several different voices. So you I had to know. do an Italian accent? 
Oh, sure. Well, let, okay, me, let me hear it. Well, oh, Come on. Uh, forget about the Italian accent. <laughs> Come on. I did something. Uh, are you taking my story away from me, Dad? <laughs> uh, what was important was that I got on. Uh-huh. Uh, they called me, and I went in, and I did my English accent. I did some Irish. Whatever I did, I did the old man, <laughs> and I did the young man. Whatever I did, uh, thank you. Uh, don't call us. We'll call, we'll call you. you. Now I'm already at the door, and I turn around and I say, uh, you know, there's one thing I do which I kind of hesitated to do, and that's Jewish dialect. Oh, they said, well, if you do, you want. I said, I'd like to. Now, the reason I'm speaking about Jewish dialect right. is the Herald Tribune, which was the, one of the newspapers in 1929, had a cartoonist whose name was Milt. Gross, okay. G-R-O-S-S. Milt Gross was a brilliant cartoonist, but for pleasure, he had a column every Saturday where he told fairy tales with a Jewish accent. He'd write it that way. He loved it, and he'd draw little pictures. Little red riding hook. You know, <laughs> take a sip of the cornflakes, darling, and Mama will tell you about little red riding hook and the big bad wolf. So before uh, Eddie Murphy, there was Milton Gross then, right? That's right. <laughs> okay. So Milton Gross, I come back in and I say, well, I can read you something from, you know, and I began once upon a time, you know, <laughs> that kind of thing. And her eyes light up. She comes out of the control room and she says, you're on the air, my young friend. Uh, can, can, can you do this uh, Saturday morning for children? They'll love it. They'll like to hear Jack and the Beanstalk with a, with a funny accent. And I said, of course. She says, well, you'll hear from us, and you'll be on in two or three weeks. We'll send you a letter of commitment. It paid all of us, uh-huh. five, $5 or three fifty or something like that. Oh, some things to, haven't changed. I get to the door again now, and she stops me. And she says, I assume you have the rights to do these stories. I said, what's, what's rights? I wasn't at law school yet. She says, well, you have to have permission. It's copyright material. We can't let you go on the air with a little Red Riding Hood or with a dialect and all the jokes he has in it right. unless you have the permission. You've got to go to group Milk Gross and get permission for us to use it or we can't use you. Well, this was like D-Day to me. <laughs> Where am I going to find Milk Gross? Where am I going to get rights? But I found him downtown, and I skipped a class here and skipped a class there, and he threw me out for three months running. The cartoon room at the Herald Tribune was no place for a 17, 18-year-old kid. Trying to get oh, rights to his yeah, yeah, right. and Finally, Finally, he says, okay, kid, uh, I tell you what, you're a nice kid, and I like you. I'll give you four times. You can go on the air four times. After that, they got to pay me something. It can only be a token payment, but they got to pay me. Wow, now I'm in business. I call <laughs> Margaret Cuthbert, and she says, okay, you're on the air. I got the notice, you know, $350, $5, you're right. booked, and so on. I go on the air in the new studios at Rockefeller Center. I'm on the air. I go on one Saturday. The second Saturday, the phone, the Page boy, they had page boys in those days. There's a phone call for you, Mr. Brown. I go out, and on the phone is a voice which says, My name is Gertrude Berg, and my father has a hotel in the Catskill Mountains, and I've done stories about a Jewish family 
you know, living on the Lower East Side. And if you could sell NBC what you're doing, you could play the father on my series and maybe sell it. And I could do the writing and we could be partners. Okay. That's how the Goldbergs came about. And the Goldbergs was one of the landmark radio series that became a television series right. and so on. And uh, it took me about a year to get NBC to decide to put on a drama about a Jewish family living on the Lower East Side. Mama Goldberg, right. Papa Goldberg, the children, the neighbors, the whole thing. They paid $75 for the 15 minutes, and we were each left with about 10 or $12. And after six months, the program caught on. People liked to listen wow. to the Goldbergs. And she said, thank you. Get lost. Great. It's right. Uh, well, was, some well, things don't change in entertainment was, either. She was 30 years old. And she brought me up to the Mount Eden Avenue before we stopped. I still, well, she's gone. Somebody took her to another world. And uh, maybe. See what happens when they cross High Brown? See? Yep, yep. You got to watch out for the evil eye. Uh, but whatever, whatever happened, I immediately said, if I can sell one show, I can sell more than one show. Back come on the longies, and back go the books into the men's room. And you just keep and, pitching. Uh, the best friend of Gertrude Berg was also a writer, and of the same background and the same feeling. And I said, she says, I can write better than Tilly Berg, <laughs> and I'm going to do a series. What would you like? So I did what is today called Who Will Marry My Father, or Bachelor. Right, right, right. 19, 2003. This was way, way back. And I can't even go back that far. And we create, I created a thing called the Bronx Marriage Bureau. Um, so it know, was matchmaking. That's right. The man was a shotgun. He was who married my father. I mean, here it is. The guy's making a millions. Absolutely. With, and there I was doing it for Goodman's Matzos. As luck would have it, I had a sponsor who went on the air for 18 weeks before the Passover holiday. Right. And we went on three times a week for 15 minutes on WOR and created a marriage. From Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, we created a happy marriage. And it all comes together in three episodes. That's a had to. Yeah. So 18 weeks. I did nine marriages. Nine marriages. <laughs> and <laughs> I was great. in business. And to go back to what you asked me about right. Italian dialect, I said if it works with a Jewish family in New York, it'll certainly work with an Italian family. So I went and created a thing with another writer right. called Little Italy. Little Italy. See, before The Sopranos, there was Little Italy. There sure was, but none of that language <laughs> and none of that sex and none of that killing Little Italy was a great place. The big thing was how Mama cooked and how Papa made the wine and so on, whatever. Did you ever get risque at all? Oh, no. You never didn't. You wouldn't get on the air. Right. There was a whole department that occupied eight offices of strength. Let me tell you about getting risque. Okay. In 1939, there was only the National Broadcasting Company. Right. There was no Blue Network and Red Network. The National Broadcast wouldn't take a laxative for a sponsor. Really? You couldn't advertise a laxative. And I, at that point, was doing some work 
with a thing called Grand Central Station, which are very popular show Absolutely, yeah. for Lambert Pharmaceutical Company. And the Lambert Pharmaceutical Company makes Listerine. And the president of Lambert Pharmaceutical uh, was friends with the president of Carter's Little Liver Pills. And he was dying to get on the air. Harry Hoyt, long gone, brilliant, wonderful friend. Uh, he wanted to put, and, and the network wouldn't take him. They wouldn't but, take Carter's Little Liver Pills? That's right. Mm. It was a laxative. You couldn't <laughs> take it. It wouldn't go on the air. So here we go. Uh, what luck happens, the FCC says you can't own two, two stations or two networks. It's so different from what's oh, going please, on yeah, now. Absolutely. You, can own, you can own America A thousand today. of them, right? Well, all you have to do is belong to the right party. <laughs> uh, what happened then was that the red network was EAF, and Jay-Z became the blue network, which is today the uh, American Broadcasting Company. Okay. And the Blue Network, the president came over from EAF, and his name was Edgar Kobach, a blessed member, a wonderful man. And he says, we need sponsors, and you can go on the air, Mr. Carter, Little Liverpool's Harry Hoyt. And that's how I came to be called in Harry Hoyt called me and says, I play golf with whoever was the president of Lamb. Do you have another show like Grand Central Station? I was getting all of $750 for six actors. Oh, forget well, it. Well, $750, though, left, back in oh, 1938. Oh, $100. Right. That was a lot of money. In 38, I was married. Yeah, right. Two kids. So Now, when you were married and had two kids, did you live... I've At lived, your same apartment that you're in? I have lived where I live now since 1938. Wow. And it's wonderful. Yeah. And I have four great grandchildren. Wow. And that is more wonderful even. But when I came in to Harry Hoyt, I had in my bag three audition tapes. Not tapes. Right. Forgive me. Platters. Did platters, right. Tape didn't come till 48. Yeah. We had to go through the war. So I played one then. I mean, people who are listening, well, if they're old enough to remember, there was a show from Chicago called Mr. First Nighter. That was, they really did an opening night and a half an hour of a new play. It was visiting Broadway, and it's Barbara Luddy and Les Tremaine. Who the, so many of your listeners will remember all of that. So uh, Mr. First Nighter said to me, you asked me where these ideas go, right. the night before dress rehearsal is a little maybe more important than the opening night. So I created a show called Dress, dress rehearsal. rehearsal. He listened to it and he kind of liked it. And then I had been doing a couple of things like there was a, an editor of one of the newspapers, a man called Fulton Ausler, edited uh, Liberty Magazine, the Saturday Evening Post were big. Uh, and uh, uh, so they had uh, a, a property. Uh, he would write, uh, edit, but he also uh, wrote under the name, of, a pen name, about a, a fictitious police commissioner of New York City in 1937. He wrote these stories for the Saturday Evening Post. So I said, how much would I have to pay to have the right to have the police commissioner with me? And it got to be a little bit wild. Right. So I said, well, maybe I can buy rights from somebody else. I had already bought rights 
too. Two Mills Burroughs, in right. a sense. But I knew enough about right, buying rights to Dick Tracy, Terry and the Pirates. They were both on the air. So And uh, you and you secured the radio rights yeah, for them. Yeah. So I went now, out, were you in law school at this time? Yeah, at 31 time, right. I was in okay. law school. Uh, so I went out and got the rights to Bulldog Drummond. And he liked Bulldog Drummond, and it be, then became a series, one, right. but not enough. Then I said, I got one more thing to play for you, Mr. Hoyt, and then I finished. I've lost an account. And it starts with a creaking door, okay. and it's called the creaking door. Well, I play the first episode for him one half hour with regular cast. I have wonderful actors in those days. Oh, they were all federal theater people. They were just sensational. Agnes Moorhead, Mercedes McCambridge, Marty Gable, Paul Stewart, Everett Sloan, Orson Welles. You're you're mentioning all the people who ended up being part of Mercury Theater. And who were they wore the Mercury yeah. Theater? And who were in and they uh, were getting, Kane. And they were getting thirty-seven dollars a week <laughs> for eight performances. It was the Federal Theater Project, the best in the business. Uh, so uh, uh, I, I started with the creaking door with Harry Hoyt, and he said, "I love it, but I don't like the title." I said, what's bothering you about the title? That's what it is, the creaking door. And your imagination again. The door opens and a disembodied voice says, come in, implying I dare you, come in. And you came in and you created this world of mystery, of suspense, out of space. That's what ra- That's what your mind is for. You became a part of my, my showmanship. And, uh, and, you know, for those of you on uh, listening on World Space and XM, when you visit New York City and you visit the Museum of Television and Radio, they actually have the creaking door that you named the official creaking door here yeah. at the Museum of TV and Radio. Right? I found a door which was in the sound effects department <laughs> right. that they had thrown away. And any time I did an underground or mysterioso thing I'm on, on Dick Tracy or any of my shows, that was the door, number seven or number four. I don't even remember. Right. Uh, that was the creaking door. And so in a kind of a peak, Ted, you know, you got to be a smart alley kid to get away with it. The New Yorker magazine came out in 29, and on the last page of the New Yorker, it shows you how crazy we live. Uh, there was a column called The Inner Sanctum. They, they had a series, of, you belong to the Inner Sanctum Mysteries Club or whatever it was. Uh, so I had read that going down. Carter's was on Park Row, and I had to come down from 89th Street. I said, <laughs> how would you like Inner Sanctum Mysteries, Mr. Hoy?" And he said, that's fine. Now I had to go out and get the rights. Because I just made that, I took it out of, and, you know, being a lawyer didn't help me. Right. And now I, you can't copyright the word inner sanctum. Right. It's a, but I, the creak of the sound, the creaking door, I not only have copyrighted right. that, I have a trademark. It was the first sound effect that the U.S. government ever trademarked. Really? Yeah. There's another sound that was a second sound that they trademarked, which came because I set a pattern of sorts. That would be bong, bong, bong. The NBC NBC Chimes. Logo. You can't use that without, it's a trademark. And they decided that a sound effect or a sound is as important as a logo or a word. And it all started with your creaking door. Uh Uh-huh. That's the way I tell it, and nobody's challenged it. <laughs> that's, that's your story and you're sticking to it. 
Well, it is true. It's though. great. That's the way it happened. Tell, let's talk about actors. What makes a strong radio drama actor? A God-given talent. They have to have a voice. They have to have the ability to say everything that we feel and see through their voice. Yeah. And that is a God-given talent. All right. Some of of them have it and some of them don't. Some of the actors that you have worked with in the past, from Agnes Moorhead to Mercedes McCambridge to Tony Roberts, who you still work with. Marion Seldes, I still work with. Yeah. Uh, Memories and thoughts about some of them. Uh, A good director is not a coach. A good director puts the right people together, knows that the words will fit the people he's giving them to, knows the sequence of emotional development in any given. You don't coach. And I never have read a line for an actor. You know who has said something very similar to that? Quentin Tarantino. When he's written his words, and they can be a little more violent, a little more risque, That's you know. True. But he has written them specifically for the character, for that actor, for that way That's, that person is, for right. the way they speak and the way they That's would act. Right. You do it that way. Right. Uh, and then when Eli Kazan died the week ago, he was the first person that allowed the actors to come on and mumble on stage right. and, and, and slur over words and so on because that's the way people sometimes are. You don't grasp every single word. Uh, what makes a great actor? Sure, you need voice quality, but you need more than that. You need to. Nobody is able to understand the other fellow any better than an, a Mercedes McCambridge or, or an Agnes Moorhead or a man like Orson Welles. When I went on with Inner Sanctum, the first week I had Boris Karloff, Peter Lorre, Claude Rains. Uh, Wow. These were people who related. It's a relationship with the other voice. So it's not a relationship that's physical. You're not looking at Marlon Brando, and you're not looking at uh, uh, Joan Crawford. You're listening and creating for yourself the person you want to follow. I teach a great deal, still do, and the important thing I say to people who want to write is in the first minute, I must get my listener to identify with my leading character. The minute you identify with my leading character, I'm home free. I have to congratulate you, too, because you're a doctor, Hyman Brown. Now, great. <laughs> Are we going to need to call you doctor, like Dr. Hilda Hope? Are we well, call- it's very funny. My great-grandchildren, because I'm that, a great-grandchildren, they don't call me that. They call me Papa Jaime. And now <laughs> now they surprise me. They say, oh, you are Dr. Papa Jaime. You make it through the Depression, and World War II comes along. The way there has been this call to patriotism with what's recently happened here in the United States, what was the mood of radio? when World War II occurred? Well, first off, can you imagine a time when there was no television? Right. That is hard for anybody to imagine because it dominates our lives so overwhelmingly. Uh, When World War was coming, again, I cannot tell you how these things come to me. They do come to me. I'm very, very conscious about what goes on politically and socially in our lives maybe the overly so, it suddenly 
dawned on me that people didn't know that there was somebody called Hitler, 1934, 35, the Reichstag, that this man was anti-Semitic. And how do I say this to 48 states or 50 states and to America? So I went to a guy called Sinclair Lewis who had a book called Main Street, USA. And I said, could I borrow the name? I have no money. And I want to do a series of half-hour shows telling America about Hitler, about anti-Semitism, and about the threat of this man to democracy. And he said, all right, what will you be doing with it? I said, we're going to give them away. I will raise money to produce and create acetates. And we can get, in those days, I imagine we can get at least 10 of the big cities, New York, Boston, Chicago, because they have large Jewish communities and so on. Uh, and I want to send these shows. So he. So this is me, the mid-1930s? This is 1937. It all began then. Into the, Then the war years for right. us began to come. We didn't really uh, begin to feel Hitler till 38 or 39. What was the reaction to the programs? Oh, I got them played. I, for instance, the first show was a wonderful novel about uh, some family died, very rich, in a Vermont town, and left millions and millions of dollars to the community as long as they used it for anything but a Jewish cause. No Jewish person could be benefited by what they left in their will. So you I'm, told the story of anti-Semitism. That's right. That was anti-Semitism was the backbone of a man called Hitler. What, what do you Absolutely. think the Holocaust was? Uh, so uh, uh, the, the the big thing in this town, the story dramatized because there was faction on this side, a faction. Who cares about the few Jewish people that live here? Well, it wasn't just the few Jewish people that live here in Vermont. It was a whole ideology of condemning a religion and a belief and so on. And the drama for half an hour was very powerful. And the town voted not to accept the gift. That began. So I did. I'm following through with the war thing. There were a dozen of these shows. I'm a a storyteller, and I could take all your time up telling stories. And when the war began, it was very, very serious for me to... I was working with Bill Paley, who was a great, great broadcaster. How did you and Bill Paley meet? He opened a place at 113 West 57th Street called Columbia Broadcasting. And they had like four or five stations. And I didn't meet him. I, I mean, we didn't meet. I went and knocked at his door, really. Uh, I knew it was a new network or a new group of stations on 57th Street. Again, with the longies and again with the black stockings. And uh, uh, that's how I met him. Uh, he was very accessible, and they were looking for program ideas, and so that's how. So from the 20s through the 30s, you became friends. Oh, uh, yeah. Well, well, I wasn't a social friend, right. but in business, he's responsible for me being on the air seven nights a week with a one-hour show for nine years. Who ever heard of that? Nobody. So uh, uh, that's, that's how, uh, when the war came, he became the head of the War Information Agency, and I, as a soldier was hitched up to him, and they didn't want me to lose Inner Sanctum or Thin Man because of the morale value of the shows, and I was able to inject some themes that relate to war and whatnot. You served, in the, some of the you served shows. in the Army? I, I was part of the Army, army. but I, I was able to keep 
to it. But for the war effort, right. I then, to answer your first question, created a series called Green Valley, comma, USA. That was Main Street, right. USA. I didn't want to get involved with Sinclair Lewis, and I, and I don't think he would have. But Green Valley, comma, USA belonged to me. I gave it to the war information. And this was an average American community, and everything that happened in the war happened dramatically in this small town and to this one family. Now, Main Street, USA, you wrote those stories? No, I you always— You had writers. Uh, I'm not— a primary writer. Right, right, right. I will create an outline. I will work on an outline. I'm a very, very competent editor. So that always, but it, there wasn't anything to edit until we had tape. Right. You couldn't edit because there was nothing. You, you, you just was, couldn't get into. In the war, we had wire. You, you can't cut a wire, uh, which had made an impression because you can't make a splice. When we got tape, you could then fuss a little more. But uh, uh, the editing would come at rehearsal. And you had to go on the air. 15-minute show was 14 minutes and 30 seconds, or 29 minutes and 30. 30 seconds was always allowed for station identification and announcement. When you worked with the radio dramas, were there certain sound effect engineers that knew their craft a little better than others, that you would say, listen, if I'm doing this, I'm working with this guy. They were wonderful. They were most creative. I, uh, from, for Inner Sanctum, I, I had three sound men working at the same time. Today, if you have to mix a movie, if you ever sat in on a movie mix, it takes weeks, and they got eight guys laying in the sound. Here, I had to get on the air. Sounds yeah, like I, a union job. It depends on the show. For Dick Tracy, I could get away with two sound. But with Inner Sanctum, I needed three sound. But a, a sound effect like the Grand Central train coming in, I needed two, three guys. One was on the whistle. The other one was on the brakes. And, the, and of course, no train comes into Grand Central Station the way my train came in. I used the Santa Fe train screeching into Los Angeles, and I'd get a hundred letters saying, you idiot. Nothing like that happens on Park uh, Avenue. <laughs> uh, but there it but was. But it was good for radio. It was very good for radio, but it was even better for me. That's the That's way okay. I saw my stories happening. Right. They came out of the steam and the whistle and the screech of the, of the people who came to Grand Central Station. They didn't just come into Grand Central and tiptoe into New York. They came in and said, listen to me. So we are in the mid-1940s, and we are moving into the motion picture age. And by the 1950s, television, motion pictures. Oh. We're going to talk about that in just a couple of minutes. All right? Okay. What else were you involved in during the war, during World War II? Well, we had a tremendous job to uh, have people understand the economy of a war. And we had many, many organizations that had to take care of all of the things that war brings with it. Poverty housing, job employment, all sorts of things. And I got very, very deeply involved because of my feeling for Main Street USA, which I spoke of earlier. Uh, I began to work with the Federation of Jewish Philanthropies. And working with the Federation of Jewish Philanthropies in New York City opened up 
dozens of hospitals, homes for the aging, nursing homes, rehabilitation centers, psychiatric help, everything. And I became immersed in all of that as a volunteer without any any consideration for payment. I have done a fabulous amount of, of philanthropic work. I not ever, never take a penny. Not pro bono. People who are listening who understand pro bono, that means whatever <laughs> is out of pocket. If I had to hire something, I hired it and paid it out of my own pocket. But what I, when I did something important, uh, it had to come absolutely free. And I worked very, very hard for many, many organizations. You've always been very philanthropic from the 30s. Well, I was born, there was 50 cents in the house. Wow. And there were four tenants on the floor with one toilet. I mean, I say toilet because that's what it was. I said just while we were off mic, there's a, there's a cerebral approach that you take to creating the characters and the shows. And using the mind and the imagination, for instance, when we were celebrating the bicentennial of the Constitution and the Voice of America wanted to go out in English to 170 cities or nations or right. languages, the, I came to them and uh, I was able to do the most wonderful, wonderful series dealing with the Constitution. I did 78 half hour, no commercials, 30 minute shows, all drama about what a democracy is and it 200 years. Who knew? Nobody has done it to this minute. Right now, I'm trying to get through to the museum in Philadelphia, right. which is devoted to the Constitution. They don't know that I have 78 half-hour shows that are absolutely mind-boggling. The dramas that I have done really, really tell the story. Well, I'm democracy. from Philadelphia. I'm friends with the mayor, so I'll hook you up. Okay? Uh, they're sending a car up, I was told, Good. to bring me down to Philadelphia. Good. These are programs that are all paid for. The first 26 are hosted, you know, introduced right. and wound up with by a guy called Charles and Heston. The second 26 were hosted and uh, front and back by Richard Widmark. Wow. And the third 26 were hosted by uh, Donna Michi was my editor. And uh, let me tell you, we the people, in order to form a more perfect union, these are dynamite shows about the average person listening and how democracy came to be what it is through people like they are and how they can make it work and continue because there is that unanimity of emotion and feeling. When you were working through the 1940s into the 1950s, the advent of television, uh, how did that affect radio listening? It affected it by putting it out of business. I was the last guy on the air with anything dramatic, and that was only because I had some friends <laughs> at NBC. Uh, what show was that? Uh, well, it was called Morning Matinee, right? and it went on from 55 to 59. 
that was the end. Uh, everything before in radio by fifty was out of business. But you knew that you knew that there was another business in television, and you oh, bought and you uh, actually got into it pretty heavy with your sound. Well, my I did what what the guys in the movie business did way back thirty years before me. They said if we want to stay in the business, we must own the means of production. So I went out. And on 26th Street in the middle of Manhattan, I found the, uh, uh, an empty building, which was the 9th Mounted Cavalry, Ted. Wow. And I converted that space, 70,000 square feet, into movie television studios. What kind of shows were filmed there? The first show was Phil Silver's. Really? Yeah. So it was filmed on your set, the Phil Silver right, Show. Uh, CBS became my tenant and remained my tenant for 37 years. Now, that's unheard of for to have a tenant for 37 years in the movie business. It's too cold for one actor. It's too hot for another. I mean, to run a studio, two stages, 100 by 100 by 37 feet, oh, it, was, it, it was overwhelming. And yet I managed to run it. I managed to do my philanthropies. I managed to do a lot of other things. So High Brown then moves into being, from along with radio, you move into a soundstage. An entrepreneur. An entrepreneur. So during those years, memories of the soundstage, memories of some of the actors, memories of some important things that came from you having that building there. Oh, well, a play. The producers was made in my studio, the movie. Really? Yeah. Long Day's Journey was Catherine Hepburn was made in my studios. Uh, uh, I, I just mentioned Phil Silvers. Uh, Judy Garland did many of her specials. I there, mean, there was an interesting couple that also filmed in your studio, if I'm not mistaken. Richard Burton? Elizabeth Taylor? Oh, yeah. Well, they came and they worked. <laughs> I, 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 you know, in 37 years, a lot of things happened. Right, right, and, right. Uh, uh, but I was a, strictly a landlord. I didn't even bother going on the stage. Uh, but they knew that I was downstairs. And the place fast, absolutely uh, was very, very successful. And when I sold it, I sold it to people who changed the name to Chelsea Studios. And they have two or three of the uh, interview shows, you know, uh, whatever they are, right. on Channel 9, on Channel uh, 11 or whatever, Warner. Uh, and they're busier than busy can be. Now, you having that soundstage, there was an important part of your life that came out of you being at that location. Uh, yes, because my studios were back-to-back with Fashion Institute of Technology. And FIT had an incredible woman as the president. Her name and was? who created FIT in 47. And her name was? Shirley Goodman. And when... They finally, when, when she, well, in 47, she was asked by F Rockefeller, she was very, very capable to create a whole new world of fashion, American fashion, because the war had killed off everything. Even Paris was not, I mean, the war had been very destructive, and we had no fashion in America. It really had gone down the drain. All the young men who might have be become fashionable were killed or right. maimed or something. And so she went ahead and created FIT at a high school called the Fashion Industries 
needle trade height. And by the time that had gotten established in the middle 50s, it took took a few years. Uh, by that time, we ha- she had the right administration. They voted the money, and that's when FIT started. They had a condemned property on 27th Street behind me. It was a slum, really. Right. Chelsea in the 50s was a slum. You were so smart, high. You knew it was going to become well, <laughs> the uh, hottest piece ma- of property in the world. Malarkey. Uh, I I had something called the ninth mile. You know, I still left the building with the tethering rings in the basement for the horses. Really? Uh, oh yeah. Well, I'm a All right, fairly so now, romantic guy about. Well, that. I could tell you are because when you walk out of your studios, you meet Shirley Goodman. Tell us about that. Well, how I met Shirley Goodman was very easy. I was always involved with the community. So when a school opens up around the corner and it's fashion, I picked the phone up and I absolutely out of the top of my head, because I was married and I had my family, I said, who do I talk to? We make movies. Movies use costumes. And we might be a very, very inspirational place for your students, for your creative guys. It's a great idea. So the, uh, the phone operator says, let me give you a woman caution. She's running. They, they had a, a very skeletal cast in those days. It was one building. And I talked to a woman called Shirley Goodman. She said, well, we might very well. Why don't you come over? So I walked around the block, and that was it. I had met the woman who was going to remain the absolute uh, greatest thing in my life. And uh, right away, they had no room for their photographic department. The minute the school opened and moved, moved in, they, they, they needed twice the space. Okay. So I said, be my guest. I had a space <laughs> on the ground floor level that was 30 by 100 by 14 feet high. I said, will that work for your photography department? 3,000 square. Oh, she said, that would be marvelous. How much will that cost us? We have a very limited budget. I said, nothing. And And there was a long pause. And she said, what do you mean, nothing? I said, I'm not going to do the plumbing for your developing, but you can have the space with your own entrance, with your own locks, for nothing. Well, that was the beginning. Then about a year or two later, the Brooklyn Museum had an incredible collection of couture from over the years, the Valentinos and the Cardans and uh, uh, you know all the top designers right. from the 20s, the 30s, and they had no room for it or they didn't want it. So they gave it to FIT. And where do they need to store it? <laughs> now she needs more space. <laughs> so I gave her another next door to the photographic, again with their own entrance, with their own everything. I gave them 6,000 square feet for about eight years because they put some more buildings up after that. And my name isn't on anything. Uh, they never <laughs> but even, you know you drive down well, that sure, street. But, but Shirley, you drive down that street and Shirley's name is. Yeah, yeah. Shirley Goodman Resource Center. But Shirley Goodman became Mrs. Hyman Brown, which was terribly important. And she has been very, very important in my life ever since. Uh, but even right now, uh, I am doing a series of one-hour dramas in her memory. The first one I did was with Parsons because FIT, the management at FIT, I don't want to go into it because it's too controversial, but uh, FIT 
I, I didn't get a proper answer. I went to Parsons, and I did a show, a one-hour show, on Adrian. He was the first couture person to win an Oscar. Wow. He created an Oscar for fashion. He had Joan Crawford, Greta Garbo, Norma Shearer, magic names. He dressed them all. And since I, I did him, I did, uh, 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 oh, I'm doing Claire McCardle, who went through the World War, to a lot of your listeners will remember her name. And Parsons is going to be using these programs Well, they for, use them, sure. Yeah. They had a big dinner, 1,000 people, uh, 350 to $500. They really have to raise funds for education. And when you left, you got a CD and a crystal case, That's which great. I funded. It didn't cost them one red cent. And you funded them through your foundation? Well, yeah, well, yeah. I created my foundation back before Parsons and even before I thought. I wanted something to say Radio Drama Network because the networks were all slanting and hinting about a thing called television right. and radio didn't even count. Today, radio is still a powerful money-making and there are now 14,000 stations. But how can it work when, forgive me, one company, Clear Channel, has 1,200 stations. How can they manage 12? And they're going to have more because they're entitled to now buy 300 more if they want to. Yeah. And uh, I, uh, I'm, I have to talk out about it. This is no way. And the big thing is how much does each station bring in? And there's also the... The unfortunate effect of homogenization. They True. all become the same. True. Well, there's no question about it. So here it is, the 60s and 70s, and television is going strong. It's a new medium. Uh, you, having started radio dramas back in the 20s and 30s, ha were able to were able to work with CBS to air the mystery theaters. Tell us about that. I was able to stay away from radio because I was busy creating studio space and getting the best in lighting equipment and the best in photographic equipment. Television was really taking up a great deal of my time. Actually, I made 26 Inner Sanctum uh, films. I didn't make them on kinescope. I made them on 35 millimeter film. They were really great. And at that moment, I went to a man called Goldenson, who was the head of ABC television. And I said, Mr. Goldenson, you know that I am able to make film in my own place. Right. He says, I know your studios. I said, you're going to need feature films in the future. He says, you don't know what you're talking, I absolutely. We have warehouses loaded with feature films from over the years. We'll never need a new. I said, I want to make you 90-minute movies, feature films. So you were making network movies made for TV movies. That's right, but that was 1955. Before there was made for TV movies. That's way before. <laughs> 40 years before. Got it. But uh, uh, to, to be able to get through all of these people, I, I had to really keep creating, creating a need and a feeling for what I was doing. I made three features for RKO. 
Dan O'Shea, if you remember, was president of CBS Television. Okay. And he left CBS Television to go to RKO. And when he went to RKO, he understood that I could make a feature film, a B picture. They wanted, they didn't call him for television. It was a B picture. Right. <clears throat> that would run on television. Yeah. Well, it would run in theaters. Right. Then it could run on television. Right. It was a B picture. Right. And I was going to make a B picture with the best actor. Fine acting isn't always a fine name. Right. The talent is out there till you discover it. And I had a very special ability to discover all of this. So here I was making a feature, 90-minute picture. I'm not going to go into what the pictures right. were because they were great, for $300,000. Now, there's nothing made under... A $4 million dollar right, movie right, right. is the bargain of all time. And here you got... Coppola's daughter making a movie, so that's twelve million. And by the time they get through <laughs> distributing it and advertising it, and the four, can you imagine, Ted? I'm, I have to get this off my chest. Go ahead. I looked last night was Thursday, and I somehow uh, had to cross over to Friends, right? And just for my own amusement, because I can't look at these things anymore. Before, <laughs> before the. Last word is out. The soundtrack is in already. They have they they, they jump on the punchline. They got they it's, it's, got to get all, to the commercials. It's, it's, it's <laughs> all awful. But have you ever counted the number of producers that come on at the? I counted yesterday, and anybody can challenge me. Producers, however, the supervising producers, producers, eleven, producers. eleven names for twenty-one minutes of dialogue. There are seven <laughs> commercials, opening and closing, and so on. Twenty-one minutes. That's actually two people per thirty seconds. <laughs> it takes two people per thirty seconds to write can, the copy. How can eleven people agree on any one line? And this is big time. Right. A million dollars a performance. Right. A performer, right. I wouldn't, but to have an actor like those actors right. who read maybe a dozen, a million dollars a performance, I don't know <laughs> what else goes with all. It's, 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 sure, it's complex and it's replays. The actors that you've worked with over the years, who stays in your mind as somebody who is truly special? Right now, I adore Marion Seldes. Right. I adore Tony Roberts. Paul Hecht, brilliant. He came here many, many years ago, and he won a Tony on Broadway for some Shakespearean things. He is a brilliant actor. He stands in my mind. When she was alive, Kim Hunter was very wonderful for me. But uh, names you never heard of, uh, 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 Bob Caliban, Sam Gray, Russell Horton, his wife Diana Kirkwood. Uh, it's just, it, it, they're, they're so capable, they're so competent, they can go from doing one, they can do almost anything for me. And they're pleasant. There is no fussing. There is no ego involved. And we're all doing the one thing we believe in, getting the spoken word out. So these great radio artists, these great performers, they found their voice when you were able to yeah, get I, Mystery Theater back on the radio yeah, back in the early 1970s. Oh, when when I oh right, I had everybody, and I mean a man who wasn't even important yet, John Lithgow, let's say, uh, 
Uh, but but uh, I opened my series with Agnes Moorhead play, and Mercedes, whenever she was in town, Mercedes McCambridge. But all kinds of wonderful actors, they knew what to do. Uh, somehow they came up. It's not only that they knew how to read a line, but they understood the relationship. People today don't even, you know the speed at which we are listening to radio? It is so garbled. It is, they got to get so many words out every minute. I don't believe a single word from 80% of the announcers. They're reading. They're <laughs> I wouldn't buy a thing because I don't know what the devil they said. Right. And and when they do news and things like that, you still got a few wonderful news guys. But, of course, we don't have any Ed Morrow or Walter Cronkite. But they, the, the average radio announcer who's doing the news, you can't follow him. They're reading and people being shoved into their faces and so on. That's all wrong. So, over the years, you have won Peabody Awards... Oh, I've won every the single NAB award. The NAB Marconi Award. Oh, well, it's not only that. It's the Radio Hall of Fame, right. Radio Pioneers, Radio This, Radio That. And I recently got a Ph.D. in communications. Uh, oh, these, these, All these things. Add. There isn't another award they can give me. This would be from separate from the award for doing something for the hospital association or for the visiting right. nurses or for the, the Federation or for Bonds for Israel or whatever. I've done, you know, big shows. So I imagine I was in Madison Square Garden for 18 years running. Every year at, in December, I, would, I did the Hanukkah Festival. Really? The Hanukkah is a big, big holiday of Maccabees and all that stuff. And every year, Eddie Robinson came to town. And he was my host. And I did a two-hour show with a 70-piece orchestra, with ballet, uh, with, with drama, all kinds of things. And it was a stage production that was also broadcast on radio? Or was it no, just a stage it was production? never broadcast. It was, it was a stage production. Big, yeah, 20,000 people. The first three years... Then the, then we had two performances till about the ninth or the tenth year. And then I had to do three performances. It was wow. a big-time thing. And we sold millions and millions and millions of dollars of bonds. And I brought my own lunch. Today, <laughs> if you want to get into Madison Square Garden, right. you just to turn the key will cost you $100,000. Oh. <laughs> so there are things you do because you want to do them, and a lot of people don't believe you, but you do them. Talk about your appreciation of art, because you know I've had the opportunity to visit your home, and you're a, a collector of very interesting artists and pieces, from Chagall to Miro. Which, you know, when you look at it from a, uh, they're all they all have that impressionist, surrealist, abstract look, very much like the way you create. Well, the world I move in is impressionism. Uh, it's very colorful, it's very real, but very specially done by incredible painters. Uh, my feeling for that came out of my relationship with writers and actors who went beyond being writers and actors. They had a strong feeling during the Depression days for what they had to do to make a living. 
uh, I, 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 they painted murals for $38 a week, which uh, the uh, war or, or the government gave them a, a handout. And they were all over the city in high schools and in, uh, buildings that belonged to the city and uh, all over the United States. Uh, I met the artists and I liked them and they needed money. But uh, the people I began to buy were dead. Uh, but they took me and right. showed me and explained to me why Impressionism was so important, why Degas was what he was, and what Daumier should be, and what Renoir was, and then what a man like Picasso was, and uh, the, the Fauve period. Uh, you, either you're attuned to the arts, and for me, the work I do, the spoken word is an art form. It really is. Anything that engages my viewer, my listener, is important. But my listener, to me, is paramount. So I contradict myself when I say that art talks to me the way radio does, because it doesn't say anything that I can absorb mentally, except I have to use a visual approach to some of that. Right, right, right. But it sure isn't the television of uh, the survivor or who married my father or the bachelorette. I mean, is this television? <laughs> I, I, I don't understand it. So what's the future for High Brown? It's 2003. I, I, we will never lose the power of the word. Believe me, we'll come back. It'll come back. There are ways and means, the CDs that are being played in automobiles. You can buy them. Every day I'm getting offers. I have more content, I think, than anybody in the United States. How many shows do you think you've done over the years? Between 30 and 35,000. Wow. Well, consider, in one day I would do Terry and the Pirates and Dick Tracy back-to-back in the afternoon. And in the morning I did John's Other Wife. I did, I did David Harum. I did George Jordan. I mean, I did... Four shows a day, 15-minute strips. That's 20 shows a week. For years. Uh, and now, if you do that for a year, right. that's 1,000 shows a year. Right. And I did that for years. But then when you add in Saturday and Sunday, Grand Central, Inner Sanctum, Thin Man, Bulldog Drummond, Nero Wolf, it goes on and on and on. Your radio dramas that you do now, they're at yeah. Brooklyn College. Well, they're called... They were giants, and I started doing them at Cooper Union because Cooper Union was being run by a man called Jay Isselin, who has become practically my family, my brother. Brilliant, brilliant, wonderful man who has uh, the best taste and the best feelings for what I do. And uh, he, he, I, I met him through a man called Lou Dorfman, who's on the board of Cooper Union. And Jay became the head of Cooper Union. He moved over from Channel 13, where he knew showmanship. And uh, it was 140 years that uh, Cooper Union was celebrating. What do we do for 140 years? So Lou brings me in. I meet Jay. This is about five years ago. And uh, I said, let me see your auditorium. Peter Cooper in nineteen what in eighteen sixty had built this incredible uh, space 
the first time they used steel beams. Uh, he had to create the steel and the weight and the whole big thing. And uh, uh, I, I, I so took to his feeling about what he would want to see there. After all, it's an auditorium. It's right. not a movie house. And you don't show movies. And I said, well, and immediately off the top of my head, who spoke here ever? Well, they opened 140 years before with the, the speech by Abraham Lincoln who made the speech against slavery that got him elected. That was the first speech in Cooper Union. On that stage? Yeah. Wow. So I did the life of Abraham Lincoln without the speech. At the end, the speech comes in for three minutes. Right. But it was Abraham Lincoln. And I said, who's Peter Cooper? Nobody had done anything about here. So then I did a one-hour on Peter Cooper. And by that, those two shows, it was already called They Were Giants. I created a title, They Were Giants. And since those first two shows, I've done 41 biographies. Wow. Now, I fund them through my foundation. And as I said earlier, maybe uh, a long time ago, it seems like, I wind up every show with myself saying, thank you for discovering the joy of listening. There's something very special about listening. I'm talking to you, but I'm talking to the world when I'm talking to you. And you hear me. And again, I'm repeating what I said way, way back a long time ago on the program. I'm touching you when you hear me. My words are physical. They're not just sound. I think that's a perfect way to end our visit today. With High Brown, with XM and World Space. Say the line again. Thank you for discovering... The joy of listening. Thank you, hi. Thank yeah. you, my friend.